So do, if you are listening to WP, to D- Democracy Now! here at WPFW, do take a moment and make a pledge of support. 202-588-9739 is where you can vote to keep this type of pro- programming alive and well. 1-800-222-9739. We have an overall goal of $325,000. We're at the halfway point for the drive, but not quite in terms of where we need to be financially. So please, 202-588-9739. Be part of the family that supports the efforts to keep WPFW afloat, 202-588-9739. You're choosing member-supported radio, WPFW Washington. Stay tuned for what's at stake. From New York, this. What are the factors that perpetuate police brutality, and what can we do about it? Kevin Satterfield, public speaker on race and law, joins us to discuss. Crime among youth is rising. Maryland lawmakers believe they have a solution, but is their solution problematic for racialized youth? Davon Love of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggles weighs in. Stay tuned. Good morning and welcome to What's at Stake. My name is Denise Young and I am your host for the second Wednesday edition of the show. It is fitting that my inaugural show is on Valentine's Day. I promise you that every topic, guest and conversation will be for the love of black people, our communities, our struggle, and for anyone who seeks justice. All I ask is that you tune in and listen. Like, really listen. But before we get started with our show, I just want to extend a heartfelt thank you to all WPFW's listeners and supporters. I appeal to you this morning in the spirit of our campaign theme, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. Without you, programmers would not be able to bring you courageous and creative content. As an independent radio station, we at WPFW rely on your financial support to sustain operation of the radio station, to hold sacred the space that we exercise freedom of thought and voice. WPFW remains one of the most important cultural institutions in the DMV area that has far-reaching benefits for folks within and beyond the region's borders. And it remains that cultural institution because of you, our listeners, our supporters. So at the top of this morning, I ask you, new and old listeners, please pledge today, right now. All donations are welcome and will make a difference. Whether $25 or $250, everything will make a difference. So please donate now for What's at Stake, D. Young segment. You can call 1-800-222-9739, and one of our associates will be happy to take your information. Or you can pledge online at your convenience at wpfwfm.org. Or you can also use Cash App. And so our Cash App sign on would be dollar sign WPFW. That's dollar sign WPFW. And whatever way you choose to donate, how much you ever choose to donate, please be sure to indicate that it's for the What's at Stake D. Young segment. So with that, we're going to jump right into our show this morning. So I asked the question at the top of the show, what are the factors that perpetuate police brutality and what can we do about it? And so this morning we have Kevin Satterfield, who is a public speaker on race and law, who is joining us this morning to discuss that very topic. Welcome, Kevin. 
Good morning, Denise. How you doing? <laughs> I'm well, my brother. Thank you for Beautiful. coming. That's yes. Right. Listen, before we start into the, the topic, can you just quickly share a little bit about your background? Because you have um, a really fascinating background, and I want our listeners to understand what you are bringing to this conversation. Okay, thank you. Okay, so just briefly, uh, once again, my name is Kevin Satterfield. I am an attorney. I'm a former prosecutor, Long Island, New York, former criminal defense attorney. I actually, when I was a prosecutor, I was a progressive prosecutor. They didn't have a term for or a name for that, uh, that type of prosecutor. A progressive prosecutor is just someone who takes into account the issue of race, gender, and ethnicity, and how... Uh, criminal prosecution ends up having a, a disparate impact on African-American given the uh, historical uh, issues of race in America. So whether race or, or gender. Uh, now I work for New York City. I am the immediate past president of the Amistad Long Island Black Bar Association. Last semester I taught uh, at my alma mater, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a course uh, titled Police and urban communities. And yes, I am a public speaker on the issue of race and uh, criminal justice. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. So, so what are the factors that perpetuate police brutality? I mean, we, we talk about this issue, we see it on the news. Um, do we really understand what's driving it? Do we understand the issue and how it's framed or how we should be framing it? No, we don't, un don't understand it. Uh, Fortunately, my students last semester, John Jay College, they do understand it, but they are a rarity. The reason why people don't understand it is because to understand police brutality, you have to understand that America has a congenital race hatred for the black body. That congenital hatred for the black body and for black humanity and black life was best articulated in the Dred Scott decision. So if you have not read the Dred Scott decision and understand the Dred Scott decision, then you do not understand the genesis of uh, police brutality in America that is actually uh, modern police is just uh, um, came from uh, slave patrols. And so the reason why I say we don't understand is because the Dred Scott decision is not taught in American schools as a norm. It's not taught in the grade schools, not taught in high school, it's not taught in college. It's not taught in graduate schools. It's not taught in law schools. If you know about the Dred Scott decision, you know it because you're an independent reader and you read the decision. Okay, Brother Kevin, I'm I'm going to ask you just to take two steps back. Yes. Congenital hatred. Yes. Break that down for yes. us. Congenital hatred just means that it's inbred. It's, it's part of America's birthing process. It just means uh, America was born to hate the black body. That's what congenital means. It means it, it's just, uh, it's genetic. It's embedded in you. So because uh, slavery is embedded in America, the American experience, uh, the race hatred for the African-American body, uh, that is Americana. And you cannot understand Americana unless you understand that America was birthed to have race contempt for the African-American body, for those uh, bodies that were enslaved uh, from our African descendants. So when we think about police brutality, and let's say, for instance, we are looking at other communities who are also experiencing police brutality, what becomes the... Um, the, the impetus or the motivation or the rationale for brutality against other communities? Is it, is, is that related to what we see happening with the relationship between police and the black community? Is it similar? Well, is it the same? Is it not? No, if you look at the scholarship, while you may have uh, some instances of police brutality and, and I wouldn't even say a culture, uh, other communities do not uh, experience the level of police violence on their bodies and their humanities the way African-Americans do. African-American women 
and gays and transgenders. Those are the three groups that uh, suffer uh, the effects of this hatred that America has for the African-American body. So if you look at the literature, uh, the literature and even just news report is just replete with stories of the rape and brutality on African-American women, on African-American men uh, and boys, African-American girls, and with the gays and transgender community. And so it's the most vulnerable communities, which is your uh, communities of color, specifically the African-American communities. So if you look at police uh, violence, police shootings on uh, other groups, nowhere does it come close to uh, the infliction of the violence and rage that it takes with the African-American community. And that stems from slavery. Okay. So when you talk about something being a congenital hatred and it simply being inbred, that it is so embedded in the fabric of um, the United States, of this country, that sounds like it could be or sounds similar to what um, Dr. Derek Bell referred to as sort of the permanence of racism. Are, is that what we're talking about? Yes, it's, it's, it's just different. It's, it's just a synonym. It's just different words meaning the same thing. Permanent uh, racism, congenital racism, uh, systemic racism. Uh, it's just part of, and it's the dominant gene of America. It's the dominant DNA of America is the hatred for the African-American body, the hatred, the contempt for even the notion that African-Americans have a humanity that uh, whites are bound to respect. Come talk about the language of the Dred Scott decision. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, Dr. Derek Bell is absolutely correct when he talks about permanent racism. Yes. And so uh, you see it and you see it with the rise of Donald Trump. Now, I've been talking about the Donald Trump phenomenon for at least 15 years now. Mm -hmm. Oh, because way before Donald Trump, I was documenting that America was reverting back to her racial glory days, which was the 1920s. Mm -hmm. uh, so right after slavery, the 1920s uh, was just the, every decade for African-Americans had been hellish, but in particular, uh, the 1920s. And so you see with the mass incarceration of African-Americans, when you see these uh these gun laws uh, that just allow uh, people to walk around is uh, almost always white males walk around uh, in public uh, armed to the teeth. When you when you see these stand your ground laws, which just allow uh, and the scholarship uh, proves what I'm about to say, your stand your ground laws are really are used as a justification for white men to open up on black men and just shoot them and then be found uh, not guilty or not even be arrested. But when African-Americans use self-defense and stand your ground laws, uh, they, they do not get the same legal benefit. And then they actually are found guilty of, of the crime of, of a firearm offense or shooting someone. So all these things uh, just tells you how America is just heartening her racial caste system. Uh, when we talk about housing, education, health care, we have in America now a maternal holocaust in the African-American community. The number one factor for an African-American mother to successfully give birth is to have an African-American uh, doctor give birth to her child. Because when whites and other uh, groups are giving uh, birth uh, to black babies, uh, the, just the, the numbers of black mothers who were died during a birthing process. It's the number of African-American babies that have died. It really is a Holocaust. There's okay. nothing short of a Holocaust. And that goes to the historical racism in the medical profession. And the overwhelming number of doctors in America are uh, white. And so that's just another way of the the hatred of the black body manifesting itself. And it should come as no surprise 
that we talk about relationships and today is uh, Valentine's Day, that you have a historical, sexual, and romantic and marriage relationship between white police officers and uh, white nurses and with uh, white teachers. And so mm-hmm. it's circular, the, the racism. So, yes, it is permanent and it is congenital. Okay, Brother Kevin, before we continue with this conversation, and I, and I know that our listeners are glued um, to their, their listening devices, I want to take this opportunity to introduce um, Verna Avery Brown, who is the executive producer of What's at Stake. She's here in the studio with us. Good morning, Verna. Good morning, uh, Denise, and to Mr. Satterfield, uh, your guest. This is a really engaging conversation. But, Denise, first, let me officially welcome you to the What's at Stake Collective. Thank Uh, you. Listeners may remember uh, that Denise sat in for Marsha Coleman Adebayo, one of our other hosts, on What's at Stake on the last Wednesday of the month. But what Denise brings is a progressive perspective. But it's a unique progressive uh, perspective in as much as she's currently in seminary pursuing a master's in ministry and leadership. Is that correct, uh, Uh, Denise? That is correct. (laughs) And and we discussed some of the issues that she'll focus on during uh, her segment of What's at Stake. And one topic in particular really piqued my interest. She articulated thoughts about white Christianity and how it upholds white supremacy. I said, oh, wow. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Give them a little taste of what that's going to be. Sure, sure. Just just a little bit. And it's so interesting. And this is how you know all of this is, um, you know, really kismet. And that is Brother Satterfield is talking about the Stand Your Ground um, law. And um, there is a, a theologian, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, who suggests that stand your ground culture is, in fact, it's not just the law, but there is a stand your ground culture that um, has a through line via white Christianity and white Christianity, um, in fact, being supported or up. Uh, upheld um, Mm -hmm. by white exceptionalism, this myth of white exceptionalism. So when we're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea of racism and what it looks like and what it really is, it is, it's, it is, it's larger, it's looming Mm -hmm. larger than, than we have the opportunity to talk about in, in in most spaces. As Brother Satterfield said, uh, genital it's genital yes. racism. Yes. Uh, and, and so you also, there's also the indefensible number of police killings of African-American men and women and other people of color as well yes. across the U.S. And sort of what I like to call a slow motion genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you kill the fertile young males in a, in a race, how does the race continue to thrive? So we have a modest goal this morning of $500, $500. And the money we raise goes to pay the bills here at the station, the rent, the electricity, the payroll for the staff, their health benefits. I don't get paid. Denise doesn't get paid. Marsha Coleman Adebayo and Fahima Set, none of the programmers on WPFW get paid. I do this because it's my way of giving back, helping to protect our people, pr- protect humanity and Mother Earth. So at this point in the program, we need you, the listener, to help us. We need you to make a donation this morning. Doesn't matter how small or how large, if you're listening and you appreciate this station and the work we're doing to educate and empower our community, we need you to go to the phones right now and make a donation, 202 588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Pick up the phone right now. You can cash app us. That's really easy. Cash app to dollar sign WPFW. WPFW, what's at stake, D. Young. So, you know, the work we're doing, when you make a donation, you become part of the equation that keeps this station afloat. You will be a member of the WPFW family and the community 
of WPFW listeners and lovers of the station. You become part of the community of people who basically give a damn and who are doing their part to help. Any amount is welcome. Please, we need your help. We can't do this alone. 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Go to the phone, pick it up right now and make a donation. We are counting on you. Denise? Thank you, Verna. Brother Kevin. Okay, first yes. of all, we have to say we got 10 minutes left in terms of your interview. But I, And I want to say to you and our listeners, we absolutely have to have you back because this conversation is is so large, it's so comprehensive that we, we need to continue this dialogue. But I want to get to this idea of we have this thing, and I'm going to just call it a thing, and we're saying that it is so um, insidious that it is permanent, it is congenital, it is part of the DNA. If that is true, and no doubt the literature, the research supports that it is true, then what are we as everyday Black folks in this country, what are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to do? Do we walk away um, and going on about our daily business, believing that, okay, there's nothing that we can do. This is just our fate. No, uh, because emotionally and mentally, that's not healthy. And that would just drive anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation. Uh, but let's, let's be real. The state of African-American in America is no different than the state of the Palestinians uh, in Israel. Mm. We are people without a country. We, are, we don't even have a country on the motherland because uh, those countries, those 52 countries on the African continent, they will not welcome uh, 40 million uh, African-Americans coming into their countries uh, and upset in their economic and, and, and cultural so uh, for better or for worse, we are literally stuck here in America and we have to uh, make uh, a way out of no way. Uh, the best that I believe that we can do is to build up our institutions. We need to, uh, when you talk about donations, the reason why President Obama uh, won, one of the dominant reasons, he took in so much small donations. It was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. People giving five, ten, twenty dollars. If black mm. folks did that, we would have black medical schools. Mm. We would have black uh, uh, engineering schools. Uh, we would have solid black community and solid black employment. But the problem is because of the Dred Scott decision in our four hundred years uh, in America, no one hates African Americans more than African Americans, and it manifests itself in that we don't support each other financially okay. and culturally and so we have to get that black pride and then have that manifest in us pouring back our monies into building up our communities talk to me a little bit more about that that self-hatred that you just described yes and it, it manifests itself in so many different ways in colorism uh, it manifests itself. It manifests itself in the ways that so many African-American mothers inflict on their black sons. Mm, uh, we were okay. uh, taught to hate ourselves and we have internalized it. We don't externalize it. We don't project the hatred onto those who inflict the hatred on us. We internalize it and we inflict it on those who love us. And so you look at domestic violence in the black community. If you look at uh, maternal violence, in the black community, mm -hmm. specifically maternal violence on African-American boys. If you look at uh, 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 spankings in schools, if you look at the, the horses in terms of how blacks uh, treat each other, this is the manifestation of the fact that we don't support each other uh, economically and in, in business. Uh, this is uh, the self-hatred. And so, and the scholarships have shown the African-Americans have less race loyalty than any other group. Perfect example, uh, give, give example in terms of boxing. You have a famous uh, boxer from the Philippines. His name is uh, Manny Pacquiao. 
mm-hmm. and you have white athletes. White athletes, Donald Trump was correct. Donald Trump can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he'll get an all-white jury to find him not guilty. Manny Pacquiao, a boxer, can do whatever he wants. And I'm not saying he does it, but he commit any crime and he would have absolute loyalty with, uh, with his people. But just look at the last couple of weeks after Shannon Sharp did his interview with uh, Cat Williams. Mm-hmm. From that interview, you've had black uh, comics coming at each other's throat. Mm. No unity, no love. They just, and white Americans just sitting back and they're laughing. And they're all attacking each other. Mm-hmm. You just don't see this in other communities. You just don't see it. But we just have this comfort level of hating each other and not supporting each other. And until we can get that permanent black love, that congenital black love, then we really are going to be swimming upstream. So when we talk about this, this love, again, going back to this idea of, of, of Valentine's Day and how we're, gonna, um, how we're going to shape it into, uh, into a, a, a recognition of, and acknowledgement of black love, what are the things that we have to do to get to that love? So we're, so we've already said that we have this, this permanent racism, this mm-hmm. permanent thing that is, as um, Verna said earlier, that is, is creating this, this slow motion genocide. And by the way, for all of you, for our listeners, uh, uh, what, what happened to indigenous people here and what happened to black folks here terms of chattel slavery is not defined by um, uh, international laws as a genocide just so that's something else that as as an audience we and family we have to come back to but we have this thing that we have to deal with on one hand the 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 racism the slow motion genocide and then on the other side we have to deal with as you said this manifestation of self-hatred um like, is there like what, what, like, yeah. I don't know, is there a sequential order? Is this, yeah. is this happening parallel? What, cause it's, it's a lot, it's heavy. It's, what, it's a lot. What do we do? What and do we first, do? let me, first, let me say this in terms of the word genocide and the word Holocaust, people get uncomfortable with black folks using the word Holocaust. We use it as if it's only restricted to the Jewish Holocaust, mm-hmm. Adolf Hitler, Germany in the thirties. No, 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 no. Ida B. Wells in the 1900s, two decades before Adolf Hitler, said that the lynching and burnings of black bodies in America was a Holocaust. Yes, so the word Holocaust and genocide are American terms. So yes. bleak what the uh, international co- community yes. say or what academics say. We have black scholars have used the term Holocaust and genocide to describe uh, the yes. condition of black folks decades before Adolf Hitler uh, came to rose to power yes. in Germany. Yes. So I would say to for that black love, that a gateway love that Dr. King talked about, because not all love is romantic love, it's a gateway mm-hmm. love. Yes. Love of, of your fellow human being. The way we do that is we, in America, we, we look through, we look at love through the prisms of capitalism. Mm. And when you do that, we always got to fall short. Because the system is set up for black men not to have the economic power and economic independence of white men. So if black men and black women internalize black love through the prism of materialism and capitalism and compare ourselves to the Brady Bunch and uh, to what white America has, then we're always going to have this self-hatred that's going to uh, manifest itself in our relationship. We have to just embrace the love of black men and black women because we are children of God, mm-hmm. not through the prism of capitalism and materialism. And unfortunately, that's what we do. And that causes the great stresses uh, in the black community in terms of relationships. Yes. So are you talking, are we also talking about a value system um, that, um, is not communal. That is that really is looking at individual accomplishment, triumph, victory. Is that what we're talking about? Yes, yes. Uh, if you look at, I always like to talk about uh, Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. Look, look at that symbol of black love. That was a black love that was formed uh, through uh, Jim Crow America. Mm. 
the 60s. And yeah. that love transcended anything dealing with materialism or capitalism or white Christianity. They just had a love for each other, a love for themselves, a love for each other. And when you have that type of love that steals you from uh the race well it doesn't it doesn't uh doesn't mean not gonna have the racism inflicted upon your body but it means when you come home you have a loving partner who understands the hardship that a black man or a black woman goes through once they leave that door but when they come back home it's a sanctuary where you could be vulnerable where you can let down your guard and so you don't internalize the racism but then you internalize it by abusing alcohol by promiscuous, uh, promiscuous sex, by illegal narcotics, by smoking marijuana. When you have that person in your life and your family structure that says, we love you regardless of the racism. We even love you more because of institutional racism that you have to go through. When we protect each other like that, then you can't, nothing can, nothing can destroy the black family when you have that. But we just don't have enough of that. We, because we define relationship through materialism and capitalism in America. And when you do that, black, black America will always come up short. Always come up short. Brother Kevin, I so appreciate you gave us a word today. I mean, one of the things that I just in terms, I have sons and I've always tell them one of the most revolutionary things that they could ever do is to marry a black woman, have black children and raise them yes. in the black community. Yes. Brother Kevin, give us a parting word as, 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 as today is black love day. What do you impart on our collective to do? The first thing we need to do before we do anything structurally is internal is DNA which is, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Even Dr. King, who was reluctant uh, because it came with the, the whole notion of the black liberation movement yeah. and black power, even he embraced it. Embrace this notion, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I love myself. I love my skin tone, whether it's light skin, dark skin, it doesn't matter. I love myself. I love my people. I love my family. And I'm going to, with that, I'm going to do the best to elevate myself and elevate my family in small steps. But it starts with loving yourself. Starts brother, with loving yourself. Brother Kevin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love you. I love you Same for here. being here and sharing with us. And we have got to definitely um, have you on another edition of What's at Stake. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, and I will be more than welcome to uh, rejoin your program. Thank you Absolutely. very much. Absolutely. WPFW family, I, I want to remind our listeners how important it is for you to support WPFW. So we've already talked about we are a station of volunteers who work really, really hard. But I want to go back to something that Brother Kevin talked about. And this is this idea of capitalism and materialism and individualism that has black folks disconnected. That quite frankly creates um, chasms between black folks and other racialized communities. And what I want to say is, one of the problems with capitalism and, and materialism and individualism is that it is promoted 24-7 through our media outlets. You can't go anywhere. You can't turn on any uh, television, cable, social media. Every media outlet promotes this value of capitalism and materialism and individualism. And so when you have a station like WPFW who rejects those values, who says, listen, we have to be more communal. We have to hold on to those values of self-love. We have to reject self-hatred. We have to dismiss anything that creates disharmony among ourselves. 
we have to do that. And bringing you programming that supports that, that speaks to that. And so that's why, that's a perfect example about why it is so critical for our listeners to support WPFW. Mainstream media does not provide the space for these kinds of conversations that challenge the status quo, that reflect institutionalized oppression, that call Mm -hmm. for a moral, political, and economic reckoning, that demand the end to human suffering and indignities. Mainstream media doesn't Mm -hmm. do that. That's right. That that is actually antithetical to its mission. Mm-hmm. So please, mm-hmm. please, family, consider a donation as your investment in our sacred space for dialogue and discourse. Please donate now for what's wow. at stake. The mm-hmm. Young segment. You can call 1-800-222-9739. You can pledge online at WPFWFM.com. Or you can use Cash App, and that's dollar sign WPFW. I'm going to repeat those ways again. You can call 1-800-222-9739, pledge online at WPFWFM.org, or use Cash App, dollar sign WPFW, and indicate that it's what's at stake, the D. Young segment. Absolutely. My goodness, my goodness. Mm -hmm. So at this time, we are going to bring on Brother Davon Love, who is with Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Denise, yes. Denise, before we do that, uh, this is Verna. I would. We have some listeners to thank. Oh, okay. I want to make sure that um, they get thanked during this segment. Uh, We want to thank Satchel from Silver Spring, Maryland, for uh, that donation. Thank you so much, Satchel. Uh, We also have Dominique, who made a pledge from Decatur, Georgia. So you're being heard all the way out in Decatur, Georgia. Um, And and we also want to say thank you to Anonymous from Washington, D.C., that made a pledge. Dominique, thank you for that generous pledge. And also one more, Clara Armstrong Edwards in Chicago, Illinois. I think she's a new listener. Thank you so much for that generous pledge. We still have a ways to go, folks. And um, you heard what Denise said about the fact that, you know, we we can't continue to perpetuate this, um, you know, divisiveness and capitalism, materialism. She said it so eloquently. Denise is teaching this morning, I dare say preaching, but Denise is uh, there for you at articulating and, and the profound guest that she just had on, the profound discussion and the profound discussion that we're about to have with her next guest. So let's get right back to the programming. But before we do that, you need to go to your phone uh, and, and make that pledge. 202, uh, 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Denise, back to you. Thank you, Verna. So, Dave, I love with Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Oh, and you bring in all the bass this morning. <laughs> Welcome. So, before we, we jump into this conversation about what's happening with the Maryland General Assembly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, um, in high school and college, I participated in policy debate. Um, policy debate is one of the most rigorous forms of academic debate that exists. And many of the folks that come out of the activity of policy debate have been, um, many of them, instruments for, you know, whether it's the conservative revolution or neocons um, in, the, in think tanks and major public policy institutions. And so I came into the activity during intellectual and academic innovation, the activity of policy debate that challenged the nature of racism and white supremacy in the research methodology and pedagogy in particularly intercollegiate policy debate Um, at the University of Louisville, the Pan-African Studies Department under the leadership of Eddie Warner and Daryl Birch. And they recruited black debaters to challenge that dominant framework in the activity. And that culminated in the team 
of Liz Jones and Tanya Green, two black women to get the quarterfinals of, two, of the two major national championship tournaments. And so my college debate partner, who's also from Baltimore, went to Louisville, um, transferred back to transfer to Tulsa University to debate with me. And him and I in 2008 won a national championship um, talking using the black aesthetic that year in terms of, you know, black arts movement, Larry Neal, Sonia Sanchez, mm-hmm. Mary Brock. Um, and so when we were done with the activity, um, you know, my cohort of folks that were engaged in that style of policy debate wanted to advocate for black people in the public policy arena from a revolutionary pan-African nationalist perspective. And so we formed LBS in 2010 um, with the purpose of, because we looked around and noticed that that was one area where when it comes to the, the radical political sensibility that we saw that there was an absence um, and folks operating in that arena. And so we founded LBS. Um, you know, we started out focusing on stopping the construction of a juvenile detention facility in East Baltimore, $104 million facility. That was a three-year campaign, and we were fortunate, us and many other organizations, to stop the state of Maryland from doing that. We've done work around police accountability and community oversight um, and expanded to a variety of other areas as well. So <clears throat> the first time I read that story, I thought, this is amazing. <clears throat> and it just goes to show, <clears throat> excuse me, pardon me, family. It just goes to show how we can be so creative and innovative in taking the skills and talents and our creativity to our community at the most practical level. So tell us what is happening in the General Assembly right now with this um, it's this bill um, about um, relative to youth and um, the rising crimes allegedly with youth. And so in order to set the context for that, I want to actually extend on something you mentioned earlier around the okay. media, because Fox 45 Sinclair Broadcasting have been peddling propaganda um, that advances the societal propaganda around notions of inherent black inferiority, inherent black criminality. Mm. And those notions have created a context where even though young people commit in the state of Maryland, only 10 percent of what are considered violent crimes, it is overwhelmingly represented um, in Sinclair Broadcasting in Fox 45. And it's created such a stir that the legislature over the summer had several hearings about violence amongst young people, right? Again, an outsized response to a problem that only contributes to about 10% of overall violence in the community. And and I think in part, a part of that is, is that Baltimore um, has experienced a decline, um, and this is also statewide, but Baltimore in particular, a decline in homicides, a decline in non-fatal shootings. So there's an over, and, and part of what has precipitated that is community-based approaches to violence prevention. So there, it wasn't a law enforcement-centric approach to addressing violence. It was community-based violence prevention, interrupters, conflict resolution, people who were formerly incarcerated that are doing that work. So the reason I wanted to start with that is because the propaganda has created a context where the average person doesn't even know that that work around community-based violence prevention is working. And so what what Sinclair Broadcasting and Fox 45 has done is that they've peddled a narrative almost every day talking about juvenile crime. And so as a way to address the problem that has been produced, I think, by the propaganda scare tactics is to, quote unquote, do something about, you know, juveniles, quote unquote, that are, you know, committing crime and violence. So the bill that is before the legislature is a bill that was supported by legislative leadership and the governor of the state. And what it does, it does a variety of things that are problematic, but chief among them is that it expands original jurisdiction um, of DJS to young people under 13, and it adds additional allegations. So um, possessing a firearm, commission of a crime about firearm and auto theft. So it adds those as original jurisdiction. The reason why that's important and that's problematic it's because people that work with young people are clear that what you want to do on the front is you want to deal with each instance and on a case by case basis. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, young person, let's say young person brings a gun to school and, you know, you do you know, you, you have a counselor, the family, 
you know, all the relevant folks that are in that young person's life and you assess, oh, they were being bullied. They made a stupid decision. This isn't a person that's prone to do any further violence. So we're not even going to process them, right? We're going to take the firearm. We're going to deal with the situation. This is not a person that belongs in the system. What this bill does is that it undermines that by um, essentially mandating that that young person would have to be processed, right? And one of the things that we know is that there are a lot of, you know, young people that carry a firearms because they think they need it for protection, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't, doesn't, you know, condone it, right? But there's a difference between that and somebody who is like recklessly trying to wreak havoc in the community, right? And so what this bill does, it essentially treats all of them the same. Tracking more young people into the criminal justice system as opposed to making sure that there's the opportunity that, again, on a case-by-case basis, that a young person is dealt with in a way that makes sense for their particular circumstance. So when we think about this idea, and I, and I hear you when you said that we really need to take this on a case-by-case basis, that, um, that, that there's this propaganda that is not even acknowledging that there are reforms that are currently um, in play and are working. Understanding that um, our community um, is is used to crime bills, because it sounds like essentially this is a crime bill. That it that that has been our go to response to crime. What should we be telling community members, particularly? When we still have community members, whether it's Baltimore, D.C., Chicago, Cleveland, wherever, where we don't feel safe in our neighborhoods, where, you know, we are seeing every day the manifestations of, of as, as Brother Kevin said, you know, this self-hatred. What do we tell our community members in order for them to, to support um, or rather reject these kinds of bills? So I would say three things. One is, is that community-based violence prevention is effective. Again, we don't hear that enough on the media, but it is more effective than the law enforcement-centric approach. And when we think of community-based violence prevention, I like to use, is a quote from Amos Wilson, um, I'm paraphrasing his book, Black on Black Violence, where he talks, he describes the phenomenon of violence in majority of Black cities like Baltimore and cities around the country, that phenomenon as an externalization of a suicidal impulse. That when the society that imposes these notions of inherent criminality, of worthlessness, people look around and it reflects the perceived worthlessness, that it's easy to commit violence against someone that looks like you. And so addressing the importance of like self-love and dealing with the societal trauma, right, that causes uh, folks in our community to engage in behavior that is self-destructive, we understand that it's connected to the larger system of white supremacy and understanding that we need to address ourselves to that if we're going to address the issue of violence. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, is that the crime bill measures like the juvenile justice bill that's before the legislature, that those measures are not effective at addressing themselves to making people safer. That, you know, the National Institutes for Justice in May of 2016 released a report that said that it is not the length of a, of a sentence that is the biggest deterrent to a person committing crime. It is the certainty that one will get caught. So these efforts at enhancing sentences, right, or in this case, expanding original jurisdiction to capture more young people, that those tactics don't actually impact those who we might perceive as the drivers of violence. You're actually more prone to get people that are proximate to communities that are impacted by violence, right? Again, I'm hanging out with a friend and they got, you know, a gun on them. I didn't know that. I'm happy to hang out with my friend, right? Or all all kinds of different situations where you have a young person that is proximate to the circumstance that is more likely to be impacted negatively as a result of these measures. So that's the second thing I would say. And then the last thing that I would say is that we one of the things that in the conversation about people feeling safe that often is not discussed is the role of the incompetence of law enforcement. So even, you know, I'm a person that believes, you know, Western civilization has the biggest police and carceral state in human history. It is unnatural. Yes. And that ultimately we should try to have a society that doesn't need those, doesn't have those mechanisms of social control. In the society as it currently exists, if there is a legitimate rule for law enforcement, it should be the last resort. 
what has happened is that law enforcement, even if fulfilling their basic societally um, given task, which is solving murders, figuring out who committed what crime, they have been incompetent at that. Clearance rates tremendously low. And a part of how white supremacy and racism shows up is that there are, you know, I, I've talked to people within state, the state's attorney's offices who work with families who have lost a loved one to violence for whom they know that when a certain detective is on a particular case, they know it's not going to be worked really well, right? Because there's just a lack of regard. They don't care, right? These, these are young Black people who are there. And so there's the way in which the incompetence of law enforcement is the biggest contributor to addressing the very basic thing that if, the, that, that if there is a role, it's to solve murders, and they have been atrocious at that. But again, many of the folks that are pushing the tougher on crime measures happens to be law enforcement and prosecutors. And again, what they're, what they're more interested in doing or more willing to do is consume more people into the criminal justice system as opposed to them being held accountable for their incompetence. Okay, Brother Davon, with just a minute or so left, what are you suggesting that um, Maryland residents do? What should we be telling them uh, regarding this bill, regarding our lawmakers, our legislators? What should they be doing and saying? I would say two things. One, um, to urge their legislator um, to vote down to reject this bill that's before the legislature. Um, you know, we don't want a system that uses the Department of Juvenile mm -hmm. Services as a de facto service provider for our young people. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, the other second thing I would say is that it needs to be an investment in, in, in the systems that will provide the supports that young people need on the front end. Because I think too, too often, unfortunately, young people don't get attention or realize that their existence isn't even acknowledged until they do something bad. Right. right and so right. there needs to be a level of historic investments in young people in the communities from which young people come from that those investments are more important to build because a lot of those systems you know whether it's you know foster care department of social service many people know those systems are problematic and yet there isn't enough investment in functional systems so i would say that investment on the front end is, is extremely important I so appreciate that because I've often said uh, countless times that um, racism and oppression is a direct assault on our children. One final question, Brother Davon, tell us how our listeners, particularly our Maryland um, residents, tell us how they can get in contact with Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle for more information. Our website is lbsbaltimore.com, and we're LBS Baltimore on all your relevant social media. Brother Davon, thank you very much. You are also going to have to come back so we can have an extended conversation about what's going on in Baltimore and how leaders of a beautiful struggle are, are fighting for our brothers and sisters in Baltimore. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So at this time, we have... Um, WPFW's campaign coordinator, Miyuki Williams, who's in the studio, and she's joining us this morning. Good morning, Miyuki. Um, good morning. Good morning, Denise. How are you? Really, really wonderful job this morning. Thank you for uh, conducting such an intriguing conversation and pertinent and really, really relevant for all. We really appreciate it. Uh, you're doing great. Uh, you're um, only need $204 between now and uh, 10 o'clock. I know there's someone out there who's yet to make a pledge. It's time to make the pledge. And they appreciate the candid, enlightening discussion on police brutality and on racism, the consequences of racism and oppression. Do you all hear that noise? Is that me? Uh, no, we don't hear any noise. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. All right. So the number to call is 202-588-9739. Verna does a stellar job. She's assembled an incredible team of people to work uh, on what's at stake. It's something that you come to rely upon. Do take a and join WPFW by calling 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or go to the website if you're listening online. You only have seven minutes to help us get $200. I know one person can just write that check, um, uh, write for 300 if you can. But if you make a pledge of $25 or more a month, that totals up to $300. Now, I mean, what's at stake? Denise, who we want to welcome and, and thank her for doing such a wonderful job. And to... Um, 
to Verna for all the great work that she's done establishing a store, this, this program, and all the uh, incredible work that she does. 202-588-9739. Each show has a specific amount of dollars it has to reach in order for the station to reach its goal. And uh, certainly Verna uh, and Denise want to do their best for the station. The money does not go to them. They're producers. They're volunteer producers who do all the research and get all the guests to present this great work on their own. So please, this is your opportunity to give them uh, reciprocity, some affirmation for the great work they do. Uh, we've got people calling from Georgia to Pennsylvania to uh, to Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Bernie got someone else to thank on the on the uh, list. Someone else has made a pledge. Yes, um, we have one more listener calling in from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and yeah. her name is Pamela, and she also wants to wish Denise a happy birthday. So, Denise, <laughs> you kept that from us. Today is your birthday? Actually, yesterday was my oh, birthday. Oh, yesterday. Okay, yes. yeah, she did say a happy belated birthday, so yes. happy belated. If our listeners want to welcome uh, Denise into the collective and just congratulate her and show her some love on Black Love Day, be a sweetheart. Go to the phone and make a pledge. That's what we need right now. We really need you guys to help us. We are not at, we have not made our goal yet. We just have a few more pledges required. Uh, I think Miyuki said it was $120. We still need. No, I, I, said I know we can do. I said 204 oh, I'm sorry. 204 Okay, come on, folks. We can make that goal, but we can only make it with you. We need you to go to the phone right now and make the pledge as much as you can. It's greatly appreciated. The number is 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Pick up your, your cell phone is probably right in your lap and make that pledge. And, you know, how how um, awesome it was to have Devon Love on today on Valentine's Day and the profound, the profound discussion that he provided for us, Denise. Really appreciate yes. that. I mean, the way he he actually unpacks these these crime laws and help bills and helps us to realize how they are designed to um, discriminate against yes. the young people. And it robs the law, the, uh, those making decisions about their lives, it robs them of the opportunity to use discretion. And that's what's yes. needed. We yes. can't treat them, this thing in a wholesale manner. Yes, there's violence, but you have to be specific and drill down and look at the specifics of the situation. So this is the kind of conversation that we are having here on WPFW and that Denise will bring to the fore. Uh, Denise, we're so excited to have you on board and we look forward to uh, the issues that you're going to be uh, covering in the future. But right now, folks, we need your support. So Denise will be able to let her give her a nice warm welcome. 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Go to your phones right now and make that pledge. It's quick, it's easy, and you'll feel better after you do it, folks, because you know that you've done your part to ensure that this quality type of programming will be available to you always. 202-588-9739. We still need the same 200. I know there's somebody out there who could do that easily and make us go over goal by doing 300 or 225 or something. But please, each show has to raise its part in order for the station to reach its goal. What's at stake is well worth this investment. We have to keep the shows that we appreciate up uplifted and you only you can do that this is your opportunity to give back feedback again yes let's welcome denise with open arms and with a uh with really deep 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 giving and let's support what's at stake let's support wpfw we can do it 202-588-9739 all of us together we only have two minutes remaining folks i know that there's someone going to the phone or your computer now pulling out your credit card if two people pledge twelve dollars and fifty cents a month that's a latte and a, and, a, and, a, and a croissant or something. Just give us one of those per month. That turns out to be $150 a year, and they will get, get, get credit for it. What's it say? We'll get the credit for the full amount. So 202-588-9739. Won't you invest in the station that invests in, in you 24-7? And, and Miyuki, I just got a text message from my son who says he's at work, but he's willing to donate $150, so he will do Whoa. it. <laughs> As a you raised some Way to go, son. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so somebody else step, step up. Uh, we only need $4. So, so please, if you're out there, 
uh, Denise and Son will do the $12.50 a month, and someone else will just step up and give us $50, $75. We'll be golden. Everyone, over, just all of us working together, we'll get to go. One minute remaining, we can continue to support our community. We can make a difference together, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Join us in that, please. Support Denise. Welcome her in. Support Verna. Support What's at Stake. Support WPFW with your hard-earned dollars, and we will be very, very, um, take care of the very, very 